Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, and welcome to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France. And I'm Jen Romolini, and this is a podcast for women over 40. Which I always forget to say, or often forget to say. All I want is a blooper reel of your intros. It's all I want. (laughs) I think about it every time we do this, and I think, I just want a blooper reel. Oh my God, I'm so stupid. You're not so stupid. We were just discussing this, that you call yourself stupid and I call myself an asshole, and we have to stop. No, you're right. They are our worst fears about ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. alternate between thinking I'm stupid and thinking I'm an asshole. I know that I'm a little stupid. So I <laughs> <laughs> That's good, honey. It's not a thing I call myself. I just know I am a little, a little bit dense. That's okay. I, I feel the same way. It's totally fine. Smart, smart in some ways. Um, okay, so we have part two of our Ask Us Anything episode. Here it is, and we have part two. Part two, and we have a whole lot to get through. We do. We really do. Oh, my God. We're going to have to move more quickly this time, or this one will be longer. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. You know, we'll see. We'll see how it works. Okay, I'm going to ask you the first question. Okay. What situation brings you the most anxiety? And I'll ask the second question, too. And what do you do to relieve anxiety? What helps you move through it? How do you boost your happiness? Um, God, what causes me the most anxiety? I, I didn't, I wasn't prepared for this question. I'm sorry. Um, let me think about it. What okay, I'll go this? first. You go first. I'll you go first. first. Um, thinking about terrible things happening to people I love. Wow. Causes me a huge amount of anxiety. Thinking about things... I should have done by now I haven't done like not exciting things like hiking the Pacific Trail but like you know pick a like life things I haven't done interesting that interesting. I'm too embarrassed to talk about it's actually some I'm thinking about something in particular which is just a being an adult in the world thing to do that I have not done in a while I know I know what you're talking about um 
I will tell you, okay, things that cause me the biggest anxiety. Thinking about things happening to someone I love does not cause me anxiety because it used to. And now I think about it as almost like a meditative practice. Like, what if something happened to my kid? Oh, fuck. I better love my kid more every single moment that I'm with. Every time I think something like could happen to my kid, I turn that into let me love them in this moment because I can't control that. Right. Okay. Anxiety for me. Money. Money, money, money. I'm always anxious about money. Always, always. Am I going to have enough money? What's going to happen with money? Is all this money going to dry up? Are we going to lose our jobs? Money, money. So I have financial insecurity all the time, which is which is not entirely real. Like I'm not, I'm not broke. We have some, we have, you know, savings. I was, I'm not a total idiot, but the feeling of like, are we going to stop being able to generate money, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. My, my health worries me a lot. I have a lot of hypochondria and like, oh my God, what if I'm dying? What if I'm dying? What if I'm dying? I have that. That's a, that's a big one for me. I can, but I don't allow myself go into a total spiral about the world. Um, mm -hmm. you know, nuclear war. Um, oh my God, we got to get the fuck out of this country. Oh my God, what the fuck with this trans legislation, with this, this anti-gay country we're starting to live in. I can get into a real like, fuck, fuck, fuck. What are we doing here? I, I yeah. don't, this country makes me feel very afraid. Um, and what I, what do you do to get rid of, I mean, I, I, I think I'm an anxious person. I mean, I'm also socially anxious. So, 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 oh, lying in bed or after I leave an event, always, there's never a time where I'm not like, oh God, why did I say that stupid thing? Oh, that person probably thinks I'm an idiot. I have that a lot. I can still think about things I said 20 years ago and be like, oh man, like I can cringe as though I just said it. Yeah, I, I have that. I have that just now. Like, I'll just be like, oh, fuck, did I did I hurt the person's feelings? I meant that as a compliment when I said that thing about their pants. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, just, just, just feeling like just sort of wild and un, and un, and unhinged. I mean, I think I used to worry that my husband would leave me. I think that used to be a real anxiety for me. And I think that how I dealt with that was just by being a dick and kind of like testing him <laughs> like oh maybe you should leave me yeah <laughs> that's so wise honey. Oh, no, that's nothing's wise okay so wait how do you how do you so make how do we deal with it i believe in the i think this isn't yet another aa saying move a muscle change a thought just move. like I, I the other day i was feeling anxious about some shit i just went outside i just took the dog outside and took a walk around the block um, yeah, that helps. Sometimes just facing it too. Like I have a lot of anxiety, like, you know, the, the stupid shit that like piles up that I'm really bad at the life's admin, you know, mm -hmm. you go and you get, you have health insurance and you go and you get a test or you go and you get a procedure done. And somehow you have like 10 bills that are just like small bills, but you're like, well, why is this happening? You know, it's like, yeah. oh, should I, do I need to look into this bill? Like, should my mammogram have been free? You know, it's just like, and then I won't pay them and then they'll go into collection. I mean, not to be too embarrassing, but like, it's fucking awful. Like I just, and sometimes it's just a matter of just like reckoning with yourself and being like, okay, you just, today's the day I face these three things that make me feel really anxious yeah. and terrible. Yeah. I find another thing about things when I blow things off, which is something I really am inclined to do. I blow things off. And then if I just have another person helping me, yes, like not even helping, like holding my hand and saying, see, all you got to do is this. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's actually not that difficult. I will build things up into my head, in my head as being just untouchable, like impossible. And then if there's someone with you saying like, no, you just connect A to B, then I'm fine. We, in, in, in my marriage, in my partnership, we've started to, instead of getting mad at the other person, one of the ways that we've kind of evolved as a, as a partnership is we're now starting to see each other's areas where they need support and help and help each other. And now Alex, just whenever he sees any of these like medical bills, he just opens them and pays them because he knows that's not something that I can, that I'm going to do or can really handle, which has been a fucking lifesaver for me. But also sitting down and being like, oh, fuck, this closet is like hoarders. Can you help me figure out how to organize it? Because I'm bad at that stuff, but it makes me feel anxious that there's just like I open a drawer and I can't find anything. Yeah. So, yes, have finding support. And that can be a friend, too. I remember when I was in New York, I had a really good friend who would like open my cabinets and be like, what the fuck's in here? Like, yeah. You yeah. Know, and people who just have different strengths than you have. And then on top of that, having some self-compassion that you don't, that that's not an area of strength for you. And that's okay. Yeah. And that you can work around it. You can yeah. put yourself on manual and get through it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. There's another question here that was before this. As a freelancer, what is your advice for getting paid on time? Yeah. That, I thought you would be good to speak to that. So, oh uh, yes, I am good at speaking to that because I hate I hate late pay, and as just discussed, I have a lot of money anxiety. So, I usually make sure I know what the payment schedule is from whatever client I'm working with. Like, how well do you pay in thirty days? Do you, how when can I expect this payment? And then the 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 second that that it is outside of that payment, first of all, I'll ask if they can go on a shorter time frame. If it's something like we pay in sixty days, I'll say, could this be paid in thirty? And a lot of times the person that you're working with, the client will say, oh, yeah, sure. That's just that's something standard we put in a contract, but we can amend that. Um, so that's first. And then the second thing is the second that someone hasn't paid me, I start following up. I become mm-hmm. a dog on a bone. And that's not rude. And you don't have to do it in a rude way. Hey, as per as per our contract, I just wanted to make sure this was coming this week or, you know, just making sure that you have my W-9 and everything's all set for getting paid next week. Um, I really, I don't like to chase down money, but the earlier you do it, the better. In all things. In all things. So, yeah. That's, that's good advice. And then if somebody doesn't fucking pay me on time, I will never work with that person again. I had, a, I had somebody owe me a significant amount of money. I also called up my lawyer and I was like, you know what? I don't I've I've asked three times it's your turn yeah and once you bring once you bring a lawyer in even if you have to pay like for the hour of the lawyer's time that usually shuts the whole situation down and then you probably won't work with them again because if they're if someone's really late paying you you probably don't want that you don't want to deal with them anymore no and that that's what the only advice I could think of for this was know who you're working for yeah. You know, like you said, checking out when they're, you know, when they pay, but also know who you're working for. Go on glass doors. See if they have a bad reputation for not paying people on time. And if they do, don't think you'll be any different. Right. And the thing is, sometimes you're weighing these things out. Like if it's a if it's a project with a client that you know is going to give you that's of high value to you, then maybe you deal with a little bit of a pain in the ass situation. You know, it's always, this is always a weighing it out. It's always a weight system, you know, like how much is the value to you versus the hassle? 
Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, oh, Kim, for you. Well, I guess oh, I for me too. I think this is for both of us. I guess we both worked at Condé Nast. I realized I worked for like six magazines at Condé Nast, by the way. That's anyway, crazy. Okay. Talk more about what it was like working at Condé Nast. Kim France. <laughs> Some parts of working at Condé Nast were absolutely wonderful. In those days, it was a company that really valued creativity. And when I was hired to work on Lucky and I hired some staff, I was never forced to do focus groups. I mean, we did them later, but they were our choice. So I was never forced to listen to research about what they thought our market was. I was allowed to go on instinct about what I thought would make the best magazine. And that was amazing to have that kind of freedom. And my boss, James Truman, was was incredibly supportive for the entire time he was there. I felt like he really had my back, um, which is a great thing to have, a boss who has your back. Unfortunately, after he left, I didn't think anybody had my back. And that was pretty tough because the other side of Condé Nast was in those days, it was a very, I have no idea what it's like to work there now, but it was a, it's a tough, it was a tough place. Riding, I mean, you know, we've talked about it on this on this podcast before. Riding the elevators in the Condé Nast building was like the least relaxing thing you could do. You know, people just looking you up and down. Um, even the cafeteria, there was always like there was just there was like a weird hostile vibe. I mean, it it was a company that valued their titles competing against one another. Yes. Which was different than Hearst, where editors like editors in chief and managing editors would all get together and have these like group chats or like meetings. And at Conde Nast, it was every title, every every man for himself. Right. And that right. for someone like me was was really hard. Um, and, you know, it, it was also just a place of intense and incredible privilege. Oh, can I tell you, I. I was always shocked in the cafeteria because, because you know, the, the, the lowest rung, the most junior positions there didn't pay very well. So in order to live in New York and work one of these jobs, you were most likely parentally subsidized, right? Which meant yeah. there was a certain kind of person who could work at Condé Nast, right? It wasn't like you were getting a scholarship, you know, like you're working at Condé Nast for $30,000, $35,000 a year, which was not enough. I, I, when I worked there for that much, I used to have, I think, $50 left a week for food and cigarettes mm. and drinks and whatever. Like I went into severe debt. But one of the things that I remember in the cafeteria was no one knew how to spoon food onto their plates. And I was like, <laughs> have you never fucking spooned your own food? <laughs> I was That's like, hilarious. are you this rich that somebody's been spooning your food this whole time? Oh, no, no, no. Because you know what really rich people do? Tell me. This is how really rich people serve food. Explain it. They they um have the help come out and hold the tray of beef. And you have to very carefully spoon the tray of beef onto your plate. And then the mashed potatoes come and you've got to very carefully spoon those. And yes, I had I had relatives who did this, fancy relatives, and, and I found it 
just just in, excruciating. I would be in the line behind people at the salad bar and I'd be like, you don't know how to use these salad bar utensils. You have never been at a Pizza Hut <laughs> salad bar. <laughs> but the other thing, remember how disgusting it was? Like there were there were hard boiled eggs. Yes. You could take a hard boiled egg and everybody was like, not the yolk, not yes. the yolk. So, so you, they'd like what? break them open. Yes. And then squeeze out. Yes, it was disgusting. In line. While you were in line, they were just like just mangling these eggs so they didn't have the yolk even on their plate. They wouldn't even take the whole egg and put it on their plate. There was just like a it would just be like a tray of discarded yolks, like like egg carcass. It was <laughs> it was really disgusting. It was really bad. I mean, uh, like the the eating disorders on display in that cafeteria. That was. Can I just have if every time in the in the Chinese in the Chinese food stir fry? Yes, in the stir the fry girls would line. be like, "Can I just have a squinch of oil?" Yeah, no oil, no oil, and they would be like, "We can't really cook these in the wok without oil," and they'd be like, "No oil, no oil," and I was like, "Eat the fucking oil." <laughs> no, it was crazy. And then the other crazy thing about the Condé Nast cafeteria was that Sai Newhouse hated garlic. Yes, so there was no garlic, and so even the hummus. Oh, oh, the hummus oh, is the exactly hummus. what I was thinking about. The hummus and the pasta station. Like, why have a pasta station? Oh, my God. That's right. That's why all that pasta was disgusting. <laughs> yes. It had no garlic in it. It was crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was a cool, ca like, it could never exist today. I've thought about this since. Like, the Condé Nast could, cafeteria could never exist today because of iPhones. When we were in there, it was before phones, like, because people would be taking pictures all the time. People like you couldn't have celebrities in the Condé Nast cafeteria anymore. You couldn't have like Martha Stewart, like chowing down, you know, it yeah. just, it wouldn't happen in the same way because we just stalk everyone now because we have cameras with yeah. us at all times. But also equally, I was thinking about how wonderful the Condé Nast library was. Do mm -hmm. you remember that library? I forget mm -hmm. which floor it was on, but it was just like, it was a library of every Condé Nast magazine ever put out. And like sometimes I would just go in there like for pleasure and just pull the magazines and like look at all the old issues. And that was really incredible. And you couldn't do that now, I think also because of iPhones. I don't know. Maybe you could, but. They also had an amazing database of every photograph that was ever taken for Condé Nast. So not just, I mean, including everything that was killed. Yes, yes. So that big poster I had of Mia Farrow that was in my office. With the gun. Pointing the gun, holding the gun up, rather, mm -hmm. um, never appeared. It was for Vogue, but it never appeared in the magazine. Oh, wow. And I used to love going through that database. And you could find all of the photography Diane Arbus did for Mademoiselle, which was actually kind of boring. It, you know, thought it would be slightly more interesting, but she was, you know, she knew her assignment. Yeah, yeah. Um. You know, there were there were great things about working for a company. I mean, you know, the expense accounts were bottomless. All of that was really cool, but it came with a price. It came with a very high price. Yes. I mean, I think that we tend to glorify the good old days, you know, all the nostalgia. And there were a lot of bad things about the good old days, you know, that mm -hmm. there was there was not enough diversity in any of those magazines. None. Um it, it, you know, it, not enough racial diversity, not enough class diversity, not, you know, it was just like these were just magazines made by rich white people for the most part. Um however, there was also so much budget to like it's incredible what you could pay writers. And I was at the tail end of it, you know? 
It was incredible what you could pay writers. And also it was, you know, if you wrote, I remember this from before, Lucky, like if you wrote for a Condé Nast publication and they killed your story, they'd be like, ah, you worked hard on it. I'll give you the folk fee. Yeah. You know, there was just like, there was a lot of, you know, Sinohouse was like a Medici, you know, yeah. he just like, he kept an entire class of creative people going. Yeah. And valued and, and treated, treated creative people like they have value. Yeah. I mean, your job was about strategy, sure, but it was more about creating the best creative product you could, right? Yeah. You didn't have to look at numbers every, well, you did as it got I into. did have to look at some numbers, yeah. but I was allowed, I was given the freedom to create the magazine with, with that staff that we wanted to create. And yeah. that was, that was really wonderful. But, you know, Devil Wears Prada is a documentary. Yeah. I mean... You know, it was it was like that, but worse. Glamour was glamour was horrible. I mean, I've talked about this in the past, but glamour was just like weird, <laughs> like fiefdom, and there were just like the, the the plebes were the plebeious plebes at glamour, and I was a total fact checker. I was a plebe did, at glamour. At glamour, didn't they have like a pit that was called the pit, which is where if you were the plebeious plebe, you had to work like right in the center of the office in this pit. And then as it radiated out, there were offices for yes. more senior people. Yes, yes. And Glamour was the worst because nothing in Glamour was ever true. And you were a <laughs> fact checker. So it was like the worst, the worst job. But there was a thing where every month Glamour would do like one serious, one serious feature. And it was like, you know, the 9-11 widows. And if like, if you heard whisper of that coming around and you were a fact checker, you just ducked under your desk so you wouldn't get that story because it was like usually really bad reporting. No offense to Glamour editors, but like bad reporting. But then also these impossible standards where everybody had to be attractive. So if you were doing a story about breast cancer survivors, all the breast cancer survivors had to be beautiful and then also have compelling stories. So these were like impossible, like they were so chopped up to fit this like weird standard of like beauty and also kind of factually accurate. It was a, that was, that was a very messy, that was a messy hybrid of a, of a magazine. At least Lucky was just like, this is what we're doing. And I, yeah. I found that very refreshing after fact, cause I also fact checked at Allure. I fact checked at Cosmo, which was not, which was not Condé Nast. I fact checked at House and Garden, Home, House, was House and Garden? House and Garden, yeah still exists i think does it that was a that was nuts but yeah no you just always you just always felt like a dirty scumbag at least i did i, I did i mean i was always checking my nails for dirt underneath <laughs> you know i never got enough i never got I, I i never felt especially at like you know events where i had to see the other editors in chief like i never felt polished enough sitting sitting at fashion shows i never felt like i had it together enough i know i didn't I can't believe, like, I can't believe you had to, because even riding the elevator with Anna Wintour was just a very chilly experience. Like, just, mm. like, the, just like, ah, there she is. No. Oh, yes. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, or Grace Coddington was the best sighting to me. Every time yeah, I saw Grace, Grace Coddington, Coddington. Yeah. That was always a good sighting. I enjoyed an Andre Leon Talley sighting. That was a good because sighting. Because he was like, he was very, like, he and people like, you know, that Hamish Bowles, like, they're just these outsized, crazy characters mm -hmm. who, who were very, very creative and who were allowed to flourish in that environment. Right. You know, because it was a privately held company, because there was not a board to answer to. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who was the most, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just wondering, like, what was the most exciting? Like, what was the most, like, what was a moment that you had as editor-in-chief that you remember thinking, oh, shit, I can't believe I'm having this moment? I mean, I think there were a lot of, you know, flying around places was pretty great. You know, I I have to say at the beginning, sitting in first class on an airplane and not being able to stretch my legs far enough to touch the seat in front of me. Wow. Yeah. I was like, I was like, wow, like, this is crazy. And I get to like, let's think of some places I can fly because I'm going <laughs> to do this again. <laughs> Did you go to like Paris for the fashion shows in Milan? Never went to Paris because the the money is really in Milan. Okay. And Paris was Paris. I mean, if the Italians hated Lucky, then the Parisians like wouldn't even acknowledge it. Okay. Um, so I did go to Milan a fair amount. Um, I hated Milan. Hated it. Hated going. At first, I thought it was kind of cooler than the New York shows because you don't have all like the, you know, you have some photographers taking pictures of people outside the shows, but there wasn't as much of a hubbub. There wasn't right. like the front row daily and all these publications devoted to it. Right. And I thought it seemed a little more chill, but the city of Milan is just not a favorite of mine. It's like a cold city and the men are impolite mm-hmm. and the food is amazing. That, yeah. that I like, but it, not, I was always cold in Milan. I, yeah. just, I was always freezing. Um, and I did, you know, I didn't like going to fashion shows. I didn't like having to sit in the first row. I didn't like the people that put me in the company of it with some exceptions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, I, I, and I was aware, especially at the beginning of like eyes boring a hole in the back of my head. Yeah. Like what did that bitch do to get there? Right. 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 Ew. Ew. But when you were traveling, were you like, okay, I'm in Milan. I'm going to get on a train and I'm going to go to Florence. No, because there was no time to do stuff right. like that. Right. You know, we always have to turn back around. That That is something I thought about, though. I got to travel to lots of really cool places and do, you know, stay in beautiful hotel rooms, like, by myself, not having fun. That's the fucking thing about all of these things where you're just like, how this should be so wonderful. And yeah. yet it's not because of the context. Yeah. I mean, I remember thinking when I was hired to do Lucky, they hired me at first for six months just to come up with test pages. Mm-hmm. And then if that went well, we would get permission to do a test issue. And um, I remember having a lot of feelings around that time, like, wow, how will my life change? And it was always like, I'll have a driver and I'll have a clothing allowance. And it wasn't also like, I'll be responsible for the bottom line when they're talking about newsstand sales. And, you know, I will have a publish. I will have three publishers, none of whom like me. Right. And all of whom will do what they can to get me fired. Right. And so, and there's and there's no amount of dresses in the land that can make that better. That's no. the fucking thing. That's the fucking thing. It's like whenever I've had a lot of money and I've been like, you know what? I'm just going to buy that six hundred dollar pair of jeans or whatever the fuck it is. Right. Yeah. And you're just like, I'm just you're in like a consumptive moment because you're rewarding yourself. But you're rewarding yourself. It doesn't help. It just still feels sick inside. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, I do, you know, occasionally I'll miss it. You know, like I saw this, like the perfect caftan, the perfect caftan. And it was almost $900. Like when I was at Lucky, I might have thought twice about buying a caftan for $900, but I was doing it. 
Right. But you would have also gotten, you also could have gotten that for free. I, well, for cheaper, for sure. For a lot cheaper. Right. And also, yeah. I mean, you had a clothing allowance, didn't you? I had a clothing allowance. It was a magical thing. That's it was incredible. A it was re- I mean, it's like, it's so funny. It's comical to me that I had like some of the things I had and the way my life felt like in those days and the fact that I was always being trailed by an assistant, you know, like it was just, it was just a different way of being. It was a different way of being. And I just, I, 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 it, in some ways, I think that Condé Nast was both the best and the worst thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least you will not be your whole life wondering what if, if I had had that kind of a thing, what if, you know, and that's huge for me. That's huge for me. Your, I mean, misery is a little strong, but your unhappiness, let's say, in that job or discomfort in that job was so instructive for me um, mm-hmm. because I, I, you know, I knew you pretty well, even though that was probably inappropriate how well I knew you and understood you. But watching you not being satisfied in that job made me not want a job like that. It was very instructive mm. to watch because I was like, wait, we're similar. I wouldn't be happy in this. And it was a it was a real moment for me because I took a turn into digital at that time because I was like, wait, I mean, also that it was all collapsing. So it wouldn't have and maybe I wouldn't have gotten higher, but I was pretty good at what I did. And I just I, I saw you and I was like, oh, I don't want that's not a dream I want. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, I had a friend who who um got a job like mine and she loved it. She loved it. She took advantage of everything. She like climbed all the way up the ladder. Yeah. She, you know, threw parties. She like she did all the shit that I just wasn't into. So, you know, it it just it it, it works for some people. It yeah. just um you know, I think she also became a pretty horrible person. So there's that. Well, there's that, right? Exactly. Exactly. Would you like a soul? I don't know. Or would you? Like, <laughs> it's fine. No, somebody somebody wrote to me, the girls who do Go Fug Yourself, that hilarious blog, mm-hmm. um, wrote to me after I got fired, you know, because we had become friendly. And um, I was like, you know, it's just, you know, it, it feels okay. I just, you know, you got to check your soul at the door when you go into that place. So I'm happy to have mine back. Totally. Totally. And I did feel that way for all, you know, and, and, and I say that, you know, also acknowledging that there were many good things about it. Yeah. I mean, or obviously. Or but a few. There were a few. <laughs> there were a few. And it, wouldn't, it was an interesting time of your life. You're going to look back on that, I think, as like, whoa, that was an interesting time of my life. Let's take a quick break for some ads. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. 
I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin, and I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump, and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Uh, okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. I'm going to come back to a couple of these questions. I'm going to skip ahead so we can do, you know, so we can have a lot of um, different topics in this. Um, been talking with friends about who am I now? Feels like 2019 us went poof and not sure how to put together a 2022 and beyond us that we like. Thoughts on where to begin? That's a really hard one. I think you begin where you are. What do you like now? Who do you want to see? Who do you like? What are you, you know, what are you interested in? I think you I think the worst thing any of us can do is think that we're going to be the same people as we were two years ago and try to live like a contrived life, you know, that that resembles what we were doing before, because that might not be organic to us. It might be. But I yeah. think you just sort of I've been talking to my kid a lot about this because my kid's like, I'm so boring now. I don't like anything. And I was like, no, it's not that you don't like anything. You don't know what you like right now because we've yeah. been inside for two years. So I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, go, go ahead. No, you go. No, I remember a time when I was I was going through a tough time and I just felt like I nothing excites me. Nothing has texture. Um, and somebody asked me, like, what do you look forward to? And I was like seeing my nephews. Yeah. And that really felt like it, you know, but also like if that's your one thing and it seems tiny and pathetic to you, it doesn't matter. It's like still a thing that you can reach out with. Right. I mean, like I was saying before, it's like you look or I wasn't saying this before, but I was thinking it. you you look for like what glows, you know, and it's like, yeah. OK, and that'll take you down the path to sort of rebuilding what it is that you like again. And like, that's the great thing. We don't have to keep liking the same shit. We can change and evolve and be like, now I'm a person who goes to baseball games or, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, realizing like that can be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like this may seem like nothing, but actually that could be a thing and follow that thread. I am a person who now has dinner once a month with a group of women who are kind of strangers to me. I would 
never think of myself as a person who is like part of like a dinner club. But like, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I craved in-person interaction with people, with women my age, and I still don't know that many women in LA. So, you know, I, I think that it's just like also both not staying attached to who you used to be. And also, I don't know where the second part of this is, but basically just being kind of open and being like, well, maybe, yeah. maybe this. Maybe, maybe this. Yeah. I mean, when I get, when I feel uninspired that way, I think about my mom because my mom has done this amazing job since my, you know, before my stepfather died, but especially after of building a life, you know, in a city where she wasn't born mm -hmm. um, and finding friends. Yeah. And I think it's because she's just willing to be open to it and unafraid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, totally. And also consistent, I think. She has like mm -hmm. a lot of discipline with it, right? Yeah, 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 for which, sure. Um, okay, so this leads us to our next question, which is, um, do you, I'm just going to read it. And then read you can yeah. read the next one. This may be a boring one, but I'm always interested in knowing what a typical day, if there is such a thing, looks like for freelancers and independent workers, creatives. How different or similar are your days now compared to pre-pandemic or in this next stage we seem to be entering? <laughs> I mean, my, day, my, my days are very different than they were for like the thick of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was like, I feel like I was doing Zoom calls constantly with friends and also, you know, for work things, but mostly to stay in contact with people. I was alone for the first half of COVID, so that was really different. Um, and like... I would say like my days are, I go through periods, you know, where when I first started the blog, I only wanted to write at night. Yeah. Um, and I was staying up very, very late and then sleeping very, very late. And now I, I find I, I get up early and I've, I've, I've realized recently, like whatever I'm going to get done, I get done in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. And then whatever gets done after the morning is a bonus. But, you know, I, I, you know, even like the most successful writer I know says like three hours of writing a day and I'm out. Yeah. My schedule is largely dictated by the Los Angeles public school schedule. So um, I, you know, I wake up at 6, 630, look at my phone for a while or do yoga. I have an hour for, to myself from 6 to 7 in the morning. Um, which sometimes is a very um, personally nurturing hour and is more often than that a time where I'm just fucking around and looking at reading newsletters and, you know, whatever, dicking around but on I my think phone. That, I think that that's important, the like fucking around in the morning. Yeah, it's, you know, whatever. I'd rather be doing, I, I like to do about 20 minutes of yoga in the morning. That's what I like to do, but it doesn't happen. Anyway, so then I have another hour after that where I, I make lunch, wake my child up, you know, get my kid out the door. Now it's eight o'clock, 8.30 by the time I get home from drop off. And then I shower if I'm going to shower that day, which just doesn't always happen when I'm really feeling in a big, thick schedule. And then I figure out the blocks of my day. And that doesn't mean I'm going to follow those blocks, but like what, what projects need me urgently? Like, do I have to answer these three emails? Because I you know, I'm right now, I'm currently juggling one, two, three, four, five, five projects. And that will stop soon. I'll have, I'll go down to two, then I'll go down, I'll go down to, to three, then I'll go down to two, then I'll go down to one, and then, you know, we'll rebuild. But so I, 
have a block of time where I'm like, now I'm going to answer emails and, and sort out anything that's on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, because I'm working on this big, you know, needs sort of deeper thinking project, then I sort of have the rest of the day, whatever hours those are to do deep right. thinking work. So then I'm just going to start writing because there's the first hour of writing when you can't get shit done where your brain's just like all over the place. And then after an hour, I kind of can settle into it. And I've been doing a new thing where if it's not working, I just, I've been trying to just stop just staring at it because I find that the hours when it's not working and you're just trying to make it work and you're muscling through are so demoralizing that they hurt other productive hours. I agree with that. I totally agree with that. I believe that. And I also believe that going away from something and then coming back to it can be creatively really satisfying and productive. A hundred, a hundred percent. It's like letting, it's like letting the pan um, soak. Yes. Yes. Now, you know, there's all different stages to whatever creative practice you're in. Like, you know, there's just getting the words down, which, you know, some people are better at or not, or getting the project down and there's refining and whatever. But then the other thing is I have like in my back pocket, a, a, a list of tasks that I hate doing, which we've talked about, you know, like uh, filing expenses, um, invoicing, all of that shit that I hate doing. And when I get stuck in writing, I switch to something like that. Yep. Yep. So then at least I feel like, okay, I did one thing that I hate doing today. So even if the writing was terrible, I put out the fires that had to be put out. I did one thing that I hated and I got a little bit of writing done. Mm -hmm. I think that's good. I'm very impressed. Well, I'm just like, okay, whatever today brings. You're just not under the amount, like you just... No, I don't have as many projects going as you. You're not under the same pressure. And, and it's because you have one project that's consistent that, that is sustaining financially. Yeah. That's yeah. a, I mean, look, that's, that's the dream. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's, that's my day. People do days much better than that. But the blocks really do, I think, help thinking about, I'm going to be working in this capacity with my brain for these hours and this capacity for these hours. Yep. Okay, I'm going to ask this question. Okay. And then, then I will answer it. What expectations have you had to let go of because they weren't met or never happened? How did you come to accept this? Has aging played a role, good and bad, good or bad, in your acceptance? I mean, for me, the big thing I've accepted is not having kids. Right. Um, and I would say that getting older has absolutely helped me accept that. Um. Because, you know, for, for literal reasons, because now, because I stopped longing for a thing that would not make sense in my life at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also, like, you know, this is kind of a personal thing to talk about on the podcast, but what the fuck? Um, you know, when Paul and I got together, he, as I've talked to you about, mm-hmm. said, if, if, if a kid is something you really want, we can make that happen. Mm-hmm. So I want you to take a month and think about it. And I didn't need a month to know that at 57 years old, I wasn't going to do that. Yeah. You know, even though I know that people do, you know, um, I, I feel like getting older has helped me accept not having children too, because I've watched the walk that my friends have walked with their children. Mm-hmm. 
and how many challenges they've had. And frankly, I think I know a couple people who, if they had to do it over again, wouldn't do it. Yeah. You know, adore their children, though they do. They wouldn't do it. Yeah. And the um, the the true, you know, when I was younger, I would think about like, oh, that moment when my baby was born and then breastfeeding my baby and all these beautiful, you know, and I'll be unselfish in a way that you just are never unselfish when you don't have children and you're self-involved when you don't have children. And then I realized like, no, I know some pretty fucking selfish and self-involved people who are parents. Totally. Totally. And. And it doesn't, like, I do think I missed out on, like, one of the big things of life. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the thing that everybody seems to do didn't happen for me. But, um, you know, I look around and I see other women who didn't do it. And I'm, I'm pretty um, unshy about asking them why. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people are like me. Like, it, it was a combination of choice and circumstance and ju- it just didn't work. And yeah, I mean, I, I am getting older definitely help with that for sure. Um, I think that for me, I think that what I've had to accept is that I will never be wealthy. I mean, it, it could still happen, but I've accepted it not happening because the cost was not worth it to me. I could have Mm -hmm. kept going as a big jobs person. I could have kept going as a digital executive. And I just, that avenue toward wealth and financial security was not worth it. I missed too much. I missed, I was missing all of the parenting. I was missing, you know, if you're working till seven o'clock at night, you can't be there for school pickup. You don't hear about the middle school gossip. And I just made a very active choice when my kid was eight. So, you know, almost four years ago now, like this is going to go by too fast. And I, I Mm -hmm. have to make a, I have to make a decision now. There's a, there's a crossroads and I have to pick the path. And the path for me was, okay, you know, we'll, we'll be comfortable, but we won't have a ton of money because I'm unwilling to make it. And my husband doesn't care about it. And that could have ruined my marriage. That could have all kinds of things. And I just instead was just like, all right, w- w- we can do with less. It's fine. Yeah. You know, um, my mom, my mom had a boyfriend once who was a business journalist and he was interviewing some, some rich Texan who said, being rich is easy. You just have to think about money all the time. And who wants to do that? I mean, the people who want to do it, want to do it, but And bullshit all. I mean, to me, it was just like, is this how I want to spend my life filling my brain up with this bullshit? Like this Machiavellian, like trying to beat all these other executives. Like I was Mm -hmm. good at that. I was very strategic. I loved winning. But it it just, it was like at the cost of everything. I didn't have close personal relationships. I wasn't close to my husband, but mostly I wasn't a present parent. I was just outsourcing all that shit. And I'm so grateful. Whatever. Who the fuck cares? So I shop yep. at Target. Who cares? <laughs> um, okay. Kim, I'd love to hear you speak more about your time at Sassy. Was it as fun as it seemed? What's your favorite memory from that time? Um, was Sassy as fun as it seemed? It was often very fun. It was often super fun. I mean, 
we were all crammed into, all the writers and editors were crammed into what was essentially McCall's Magazine's private dining room in, a, in its previous life. And then um, the entire fashion department was in the room right next to us, which was like the, the room that leads to the dining room. And we were all, you know, the owner of the company was cheap as can be. You know, we used to sweat how we were going to afford going on trips. I remember someone once suggesting maybe we stay with readers. It was that desperate. <laughs> if we wanted to get our phone messages, this was before voicemail, we had to buy answering machines. So we all bought our own answering machines and we had these crappy little cubicles. But so that part was hard. Like, you know, none of us made anything. Right. And, um, but it was also hard. Be yeah, it was hard because of that, but it was super, super fun. Everybody was really funny. The fact that we were crammed in together in these tight quarters just made it, it just, there was like an ongoing, like, you know, buzz of like hilarity at most times. And, you know, cool people came by, like, you know, Spike Jones was our buddy. Right. Spike Jones was 19 when I met him. Right. And, you know, just a little goof. Right. And, you know, we'd hang out with him whenever we were in L.A. And then all of a sudden he's directing music videos. And, you know, so there were pe cool people came in and out of the offices, you know. Um, Aaron Smith, who was in one of the Riot Girl bands, Bratmobile was an intern. And, you know, the Bikini Co. girls came up and all of that was super cool. You know, do I have one? I have one favorite memory. Um that I'm not going to do a very good job of describing where a bunch of us, a bunch of us gone to the knitting factory mm -hmm. um, for a show. And this was when the knitting factory was still in Houston Street. Mm -hmm. And the ceiling, you know, in what was for sure a fire hazard was all like sweater material. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, Christina and Andrea and I and some other people were like, okay, we're staring at this knitting factory ceiling. We're like, okay, would you rather have to wear a knitting factory ceiling swimsuit <laughs> or fuck somebody with a knitting factory ceiling condom. <laughs> and we just went on like this for like the whole, you know, for however long. And it was just hilarious. And everybody was being hilarious in exactly the way that they were funny at Sassy. Did you, did you know at the time how important it was? Did you have a sense at the time? I remember someone telling me that they had heard that an editor at Mother Jones was saving her sassies because she knew by the time she had a daughter, sassy wouldn't be around anymore. So you didn't. So you thought that it was that it was going to be a failure or? Well, no, just that, you know, sassy was this like rare and great thing mm -hmm. and too good to too good to last sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Which it was. It didn't, you know, after being boycotted, they never got back the advertisers. So even though they had a very high readership. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But no, to answer your question, um, I didn't know that I would still to this day be meeting adult women whose lives were changed by Sassy. Totally. I couldn't have had any idea. Like so many people have said to me that magazine changed my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, made them want to come to New York, made them want to work in publishing. You know, when people used to tell Christina Kelly that um, they went into publishing because of her, she would always say, I'm sorry. I totally feel that. I feel <laughs> that know? entirely. But it was it was fun and it was cool. And, you know, but at the same time, when I was there, I was very worried about getting pigeonholed as a teen journalist. So I did, you know, I did a fair amount of freelancing for other publications at the time. And I wish if I had it to do over, I would have just like more completely submerged myself in sassy and not worried about all of that.
Yeah, there is a real thing, I think, looking back of just enjoying where you are and not thinking of the next thing. And I did not. That's a regret for me of just not yeah, enjoying. Yeah, but who does that in their 20s? I know, but, you know, it's just, I wish that I could have. Nobody does it, but I wish that I could have. That's the advice that yeah. I give people now is like, slow down. Yeah. Slow the slow your roll a little bit. You're you're okay. The you the job that you can get next is gonna be there next year. Enjoy this job. You know? Yeah. Because even when we have something good, we can't enjoy it. And that's the that's the thing that damns us. Um the other part of this is are there any female celebrities or women in the public eye whose lives, jobs, style you are a little obsessed with? In other words, your biggest celebrity girl woman crush? Well, for sure, Pamela Adlon, but we've talked about that yes. endlessly. Um, there's um, the woman who was the lead singer. This is very obscure, mm -hmm. a little obscure. The, the lead singer of a, a band called Elastica mm -hmm. that was popular in the 90s and probably had one big hit, but a, a, a lot of good songs. Um, this woman, Justine Fritchman, she was just super cool. I met her at Lollapalooza back then and just thought she was like an impossibly cool rock star. And she was dating Damon Auburn from Burt Blur, and she just mm -hmm. seemed so cool and British. She had a terrible heroin problem, which she came through and she went to the Naropa Institute and like became a painter oh, wow. and a Buddhist and like just lives this quiet life and is married and had this rock star life and now just lives quietly as an artist. Yeah, my, yeah, I mean, that's a dream for me too. I, mine are people who have really seemed to, people who have seemed to have come to a place in their life at our age or where they have their relationship with ambition, like we talked about in check, um, where they're living life, it seems to be on their own terms. I mean, mine is mm -hmm. not, I have two. Mine is Deborah Levy, who the author who I just think her work is so beautiful and also just so powerful and don't give a fuck. I mean, she doesn't even call it memoir, what she's writing and living up autobiography. Um, and my second one is not a woman. It's John Waters. Hmm. John Waters seems like he is still having fun yeah. Um, he seems like he's still active and engaged. You see interviews with him. He's like making all sorts of current references. He's still in it, but not in a way that feels like he's damaged by it, you know? Yep. Um, no, he seems to control it. Yeah. And that's that's what I aspire to. That's what that's what I crush on now, you know, is like, oh, mm -hmm. this feels like not performative. You feel like you can really be an authentic version of yourself. You're still getting to do cool work. You still have some relevance, but not relevance that you're chasing, which God damn that I do not want to be any time for the rest of my life chasing shit. Yeah. So yeah. those are my celebrity crushes. Okay. All right. Here's one more question before we stop today. If you could go back to a previous version of you, what advice would you tell her? And at what age self would you give said advice what age that's the part that i'm curious about i i like, know okay let's say I, I would have told myself in my 20s i would have just been like you're smarter than you think you are you're prettier than you think you are and it doesn't have to be this hard oh that's good it doesn't have to be this hard it's fantastic um mine would be in my 30s 
slow the fuck down. It's going to work out unless you die. And that's another way of it working out. (laughs) (laughs) True. That's it. Definitely slow the fuck down, man. Yeah. Enjoy the ride. All right. Well, we did it. I think we're going to have to do a third of these. That's the yeah, that's I the thing. Too. We still have more questions. Thanks so much, everybody, for sending these in. And thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it across the platforms. If you want to support the production of the show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com backslash everything is fine. We do live monthly events there. And we'll also, we also do blogs, but we have not been doing that lately, but we will be soon. We have a private Facebook group on Facebook. We are on Instagram at EIF podcast. We have Twitter. You can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. You can find me at tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. You can email us at everything is fine, the podcast at gmail.com. Our show is edited by Natalie Rivera, who is great and takes out all of the gross things. And Hmm. I think that's it for this week. Yeah, bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.